My name is Eduardo Zanata. I'm Vice President of Operations at the Vita and an MBA graduate of the Harvard Business School. The Latter-day Saint MBA Society was founded by a group of MBA students and alumni who are members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, with the goal of bringing together a community committed to navigating the business world with our faith at the center of our lives. In this podcast, you'll hear interviews with Latter-day Saint thought leaders that we hope will inspire you, both in your professional and spiritual life. For more information about the Latter-day Saint MBA Society, visit latterdaysaintmba.com. Steve Gibson had the initial idea for the creation of the Latter-day Saint MBA Society and has served on its board for years. He has created or funded a dozen entrepreneurial businesses, including being the very first investor in 1-800-CONTACTS, Omniture, and Ancestry. He also co-founded the Utah Angels, an investment group in Utah. Gibson served as the entrepreneur in residence at BYU for over a decade. And in 1999, he and his wife, Betty, moved on their own to the Philippines for 19 months and created a nonprofit educational system, the Academy for Creating Enterprise. He has now grown to more than 700 alumni chapters in the Philippines, Mexico, Peru, and recently expanded to Brazil and four other South American countries. The Academy has taught a total of 40,000 return missionaries, poor church members, and others in developing nations how to start and grow income-generating activities. The Academy donated a license to the Latter-day Saint Church to use its curriculum some years ago and was named a strategic partner with the Self-Reliance Program. In fact, a general authority of the church called Steve Gibson the Mother Teresa of our faith as far as starting something to help lift up the poor in other countries. Steve is a mentor in his score and as you listen to him, I believe you experience his mastery of simplicity on the other side of complexity. He's been a dearest friend and a personal mentor for over a decade. We hope you'll enjoy this interview. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Latter-day Saint MBA podcast. Today I have the opportunity to sit down uh, through the powers of the internet with uh, Stephen Gibson. How are you, Stephen? Hey, I'm doing great. Thanks for oper- this opportunity. Yeah, no, the, your, yours is a name that I've uh, heard pop up in various contexts, mainly in the context of being a strong mentor and somebody who's inspired a lot of uh, uh, Latter-day Saint business leaders. And uh, so this is uh, fun to to get to interview you and, and explore some of your your life and and uh, some of your efforts to make the world a better place. So I, I, when people, I mean, and this is what's interesting is I've tried to prepare for this interview and learn about your background. I mean, the, the, your your career has not been linear. You've been in, influential in so many parts. So when somebody asks you what what you've done with your life, how do you how do you respond to that? Well, I usually say, "How much time do you have?" Uh, you know, that, that's where we start, not because it's so vast or great, but because it's so varied. Yeah. And so uh, I usually introduce myself as an entrepreneur. I did that with my mother one time, and she said, what does that mean? And uh, does that mean you don't work, or what does that mean? So I had to explain to my mother what an entrepreneur was. But yeah, yeah. I've uh, done a lot of different things and uh, enjoyed almost all of them. Nice. And l- let's go back to the beginning and just sort of put everything in the context here. Where, where is it that you were raised and how would you describe your childhood generally? Okay. I was uh, raised in Pomona, California in a uh, small two-bedroom, one-bathroom house. I lived in the, uh, on the uh, service porch with the water heater. Uh, that's where I was raised until I was uh, uh, about 16. 
and uh, it was a it was a good upbringing. Uh, there was only one other member of the family, a sister, and my parents. But I enjoyed my experience as a young person. Yeah, and what did your parents do for careers? Well, my mother was a homemaker, uh, and my father was a union member. My father was a printer. He was raised in Nephi, uh, running uh, news, helping my uncle run a newspaper as a very young man, and and moved to California. Uh, and uh, he was a linotype operator, which is really going back a long ways. But he yeah. was a union man, and then uh, he graduated kind of from that uh, late in life, probably in his uh, 55, and started teaching at a high school print shop and ended up his career in Salt Lake Community College teaching uh, print shop. So oh, he's a tradesman and yeah. a hardworking tradesman. And did his career path inspire your career path? Or as you were growing up, did you think you'd maybe follow a similar career path? or? No, although I, I have written, uh, I've written for newspapers, uh, Stars and Stripes and Deseret News and so, uh, and, and written a few books. But uh, really, I think what he did to help me was just give me a very solid uh, root system, uh, mm-hmm. solid understanding of the family and how it works. And uh, he was a hard, hard worker. He worked two jobs much of the time. Uh, he did. He did uh, venture into entrepreneurship once in his life. Oh wow! <laughs> did it work out? <laughs> well, uh, that in itself is a little story. I'll, I'd be glad to share that with you quickly. When he moved to uh, Los Angeles the first time, he went to work for a small, very small printing business, and the printer and owner said, uh, "You know, I'm thinking of retiring. I'd like to sell you the business, and I'll sell it to you for six hundred dollars." And oh, so yeah. he, he wrote his mother, and uh, his mother had received $600 as an, inher- is an inheritance, and she sent it to him, and he bought the uh, print business. Wow. Wow. I'd like, to, I'd like to tell you that he ended up with uh, owning a dozen print shops, but that <laughs> didn't happen. That didn't uh, happen. His, his, uh, his seller took the $600, went uh, down the street, Bought all brand new equipment, left my dad with the old equipment, and uh, put my father out of business before he ever started. Oh, and wow. so sad as that story is, uh, it was fundamental for him, and I, and I remember that story as well. Unfortunately, yeah. he never, never started anything else again. Now, yeah. how that, it would take a psychiatrist to tell me how that really figured into my path, but I've been very happy with my path. Yeah. So how would you describe, like, as a, as a young adult, how would you describe your, your faith development? Well, I, um, I quit smoking to come to BYU, if that's oh, wow. of any help. <laughs> so, I mean, were you a rebellious teen or something? Or? Yeah, I think I was a, a fairly rebellious teen. Uh, teen. Um, we moved uh, from Pomona to Chino, California. Chino's known for a huge prison. My dad taught high school there, and uh, that was sort of hard, that move uh, in the 10th grade and being thrust into that community. And I, I guess I could call it rebellious. I wasn't really a bad guy, but I did enjoy smoking and, and did a little bit of drinking. Uh, but yeah. I gave it all back up when I came to BYU. Plus, you had to be 21 to buy cigarettes in Utah. So that helped me break that habit. <laughs> so, well, yeah. so, so why BYU when there are some other options that actually allowed you to smoke? 
<laughs> That's a great question. I'm not sure I know the answer. I, 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 somewhere along the line, somebody suggested BYU. I guess by that time, I had kind of thought that uh, really my friends that were smoking and drinking weren't going anywhere. I had a year at a junior college, and then I came to BYU. That story is a little industry interesting. I know we have a long ways to cover, but I got on a bus, put my suitcase on the bus, ended up at Pro, in Provo on university, and went up and registered for BYU. I hadn't taken any kind of test to get into BYU or anything, but yeah. registered and, and started at BYU, and they yeah. let me in in spite of some of my vices, which nice. I didn't know about. And so I assume you were you were raised in the church in a in a religious household then. Yes, yeah, yes. somewhat. Yeah, um, I I had an opportunity to go to the temple with my parents when I was a senior in high school. That was their first time, and uh, it was a, a memorable experience. And it was great. My folks were fun. My mother especially was fun. But mm-hmm. yes, then I came to BYU. Awesome. So how would you describe your your college experience uh, at BYU? different. Uh, I played a lot of ping pong the first year. Uh, I had a great religion teacher, Lynn McKinley, that none of your listeners, or most of them would not know, but Lynn McKinley taught communications. He was a good friend with my bishop. And uh, my uh, I was studying uh, the foreknowledge of God, and uh, my uh, religion teacher heard that, told my bishop. My bishop asked me to give a fireside and that was my first experience giving uh, teaching, and I love teaching, and that led to a mission, and then that led to other things. Yeah, and where did you serve your mission? I served in Scotland when it was Scotland and Ireland. It was a great mission. Nice. Uh, but you know what? My greatest experience was the Army. Even Not, not building a testimony, okay. I built the testimony. I gave up the bad habits, went on the mission, uh, enjoyed my mission, but I was – I. I was not developed as well socially. I wasn't backwards. But boy, talk about great leaders. All went to the great high schools in uh, Salt Lake, really knew each other really well. I, I did a little bit, had a little bit of leadership. But it's when I got drafted in the Army that I, I really understood myself better. Wow. And so, the, I mean, this was, these were pivotal years for you, both for your spiritual development and also just your development as a, as a leader and as a, you know, as growing into manhood, right? Yeah, they they really were. And I was I was married at the time that I went in the army. Betty and I met at BYU. Uh, you know, a, a fall time courtship, walking through the uh, beautiful red, red and yellow and green leaves uh, on the ground and holding one another's hands. And uh, it wasn't true love at first sight, but it was it's still true love after fifty seven oh, awesome. and a half years. Uh, but yeah, so the religious aspect happened at BYU in the mission. And I think the leadership that I learned on the mission as I applied, applied in the army as an enlisted man, uh, it continued my education. And I found that uh, I was uh, above, I don't, I don't want to say above my peers, that doesn't sound right. But in the army, I was able to lead more than I was in the mission field. So. Yeah. I'm sorry we've taken quite a bit of time to talk about that, but I think it's probably, I don't know how many of your 21, 22 guests so far have admitted smoking and drinking on this program. <laughs> and well, maybe, you shouldn't add, maybe you shouldn't edit that out, Kurt. <laughs> yeah, I think it's great. And and I think it's important to go through some of these foundational experiences just uh, 
you know, we often see, you know, as I've heard many people talk about Stephen Gibson, it's like he's, you know, this this legacy that you you have, and it's good to understand your roots and and where you come from and whatnot. And so, I'm curious when when did the entrepreneur bug bite you? Was it during college at BYU, where you thought this is this is where my career's headed? Well, great question. You ask good questions. You've done this before. I can tell. I, yeah, two or three times. <laughs> yes. Um, you know, I thought about that a little bit, and I. It's not entrepreneurship, but it's along that trail. I remember talking to my mother and my sister, and I said, you know, I, I don't need to be rich. I don't want to be rich. I just want to be a salesman. Isn't that interesting? And that, <laughs> really? uh, that, that was in uh, senior in high school. I wanted to be a salesman. And that carried on uh, and continued. And I, I've sold a lot of different things as and my career path has gone along. Uh and uh, so I think, but my first real experience was I started a wedding magazine before everybody had a wedding magazine. It was called The Wedding Scene. And so I sold advertising in The Wedding Scene, and uh, I, I did that uh, right after uh, the Army and after I started working for the Desert News as a reporter. Hmm. But, uh, but once I was a reporter, I wanted to be an, an entrepreneur. I wanted to have my own business. And so I left the salary uh, of 700 a month and became an entrepreneur. Yeah. So I'm curious, you mentioned this uh, sales experience or this desire to to sell. And, and uh, I'm, I'm curious, is that a, a skill set that you feel like is really valuable for, for uh, professionals, uh, Latter-day Saint professionals? I mean, is that something you'd encourage everybody at least, uh, you know, dabble in, in the sales experience? To some extent, well, I don't know about dabble, but uh, you take one of our mutual friends, Davis Smith. Yeah, uh, Davis is a lot of things, but he's also a salesman. You know, you take uh, Eduardo Zanata. Yes, he's uh, in the uh, dialysis business with Devito, Devita, but yet he is selling uh, uh, home dialysis. So I think sales skills is definitely a skill that needs to be learned. And you know, uh, you take. Uh, uh, you take uh, you take anybody that's built a company. They're out selling uh, to venture capitalists. They're out selling to angel investors. They're out sell- raising money. So selling is an important skill. Yes, Kurt. Yeah, absolutely. And any advice on if somebody wants to develop their their sales skill? Doing that is it a matter of just practicing, or is there a resource that you'd point them towards? Well, you know, I don't want to. I don't want to mention a lot of books. I'm not sure why. But one of the books called uh, How I Raised Myself from Failure to Success by Selling by Frank Betcher, like uh-huh. Betcher Life, uh-huh. How I Raised Myself from Failure to Success by Frank Betcher is a great basic book on sales. It's still published. It was published before uh, your listeners' grandparents were born, probably, but it's an excellent book. Awesome. I, think they, I think everybody needs to get experience selling, and many of the entrepreneurs have been selling since the uh, lemonade stand days, without yeah. a doubt. Yeah. So selling a critical skill. Well, I want to touch on a, a few uh, different parts of your of your professional life and whatnot, and a lot of your um, philanthropy that you've done and the organizations that you've built around uh, helping the less fortunate. But uh, you've you sent me a, a list of principles that have helped you in your life, and maybe some principles you pass on to the listening audience. And as we go through that, maybe we can uh, dive into some stories of, 
of uh, your career and, and the things you've done. So the first one you, you put down is a happy life. Uh, why'd you put that number one? Well, because regardless of your financial status, regardless of your family status, if you're not happy, if you don't have a happy life, uh, and you ha- you can ask some of these uh, late or early billionaires, if they're not happy, they're not happy. <laughs> that's, yeah. that's all there is. I mean, that's the way I am. I'm very simple. Uh, if you're not happy, you're not happy. So you got to get happy. And so a happy life is critical. You know, I remember uh, an age of some of your MBAs. Uh, when I was in my late 30s, I talked to my father-in-law and I said, uh, Newell, is this really all there is to life? You know, I go to work every day. I come home. And he said, yeah, that's pretty much all there is to life. <laughs> <laughs> which, which sounds, which sounds kind of negative. But then he also said, you'll understand better as you get a little older. So I made it through that little uh, bump in the road, uh, never, uh, never being unfaithful to my wife or family. But uh, you just sometimes you just have to stick in. You just have to just hold them as the one song by Kenny Rogers says, you got to hold them and you got to know when to fold them. And, yeah. and if you don't mind, I'd like to tell you another lesson that an MBA taught me. Love it. I, haven't, I haven't talked to this guy for 15 years. I don't even know anything about him anymore. His name was Steve Jenkins. He started a company called Microsoft 95. No, yeah, 95. I think that was it. I'm not sure on the name. But within a year, he sold that company for five. Within a year of graduating from BYU, he sold it for $5 million. That doesn't sound like a lot anymore. $5 million is still a lot, guys, if you don't have I'll $5 million, it, yeah. Let me assure you. <laughs> uh, but anyway... He told me that the job of an entrepreneur is juggling balls. I like that idea. And he said, you know, Steve, some of those balls are made out of rubber and some of them are made out of glass. And I said, really? Which ones are made out of glass? And he said, well, you know, things like career, finances, uh, even some relationships are made out of rubber. They bounce back. But what doesn't bounce back back are the glass balls. Those glass balls have to do with your family. You you lose your family and that you drop that ball and it breaks. It's very difficult to put back together. Yeah. And I'm, oh, go ahead. I don't want to interrupt. Well, I just want to say that, that I, fortunately, I haven't dropped that ball. Although I had a discussion with my wife that I think some of your listeners would be interested in. But that idea of rubber balls that bounce back uh, and that's why I put happy life first is because that's a glass ball. What did that look like in the day-to-day life, uh, you know, as you were going through your career or different, you know, building different businesses? Were there certain routines or how would someone approach that to make sure that they're not going to drop those glass balls? Well, thank you. That's an excellent question. You know, uh, one of the businesses I was in was the recruiting business. Uh, companies would hire us to find people for them. We were ahead. I was a headhunter. Mm-hmm. And I and I had 19 employees all headhunting in the oil and gas when the oil and gas crashed, which again was a long time ago. Um, but in that recruiting business, I'd come home someday and say, "Betty, we made ten thousand bucks today." Well, that today really was a matter of a couple of weeks. And then I'd come home a, a couple of weeks later, "Honey, we made twelve thousand today." So you know, on a good month, we we made. 22,000 when that was a lot of money and 40,000 
Uh, but one day she said, Steve, we really need to visit. Now, I don't know, Kurt, your situation. I don't know if you're married. Are you married? I am. Yep. Yeah. Three kids. Yep. Three kids. All right. right. And has your wife ever said, uh, Kurt, we need to visit a little bit? Uh, at least once a week. <laughs> yeah, I see. Well, it was pretty rare with me. And I think your listeners will appreciate that. I thought, uh-oh, what's up now? So she said, Steve, you know, you come home and you tell me about the 10000 you're making. Uh, you know, you come home at 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock. Tell me about 10000 12000 I have two things I'd like to ask from you, Steve. You know, and I swallowed deeply and wondering what they were. And uh, we had three sons at that time. We later had a daughter. She said, Steve, uh, I'd like you to come home at 6 o'clock every night. I'd like you to come home at 6 o'clock and have dinner with those three boys of ours. Help me get them to bed. And then as soon as... You know, you talk to them and relate at dinner, the dinner table, have a little time with us, go back to work, go in, in your office and here at your home or go to the office, but be home at six o'clock. And then, and then she said, the other thing is, and you'll like this, you'll like this, Kurt. She said, you know, you talk about all this money we're making. If you would just put $1,000 in our account at the first of the month, if you do that for me every month, I would greatly appreciate it. Uh, could you do that, Steve? <laughs> and I said, of course, honey. I'll be glad to. Well, you know, it's a long ways north of a 1000 a month now, I can assure yeah. you. But those two things are critical. They're simple, but they're critical. Come home yeah. and be with your family and then go into your den and uh, make phone calls or whatever you do. And number two, allow when you're in the startup stage, somehow allow to give your wife something she can count on every month or your husband. You know, some of your listeners, and I've had some great MBA students that were women. Uh, yeah. One I remember, Mrs. Hancock. I don't remember her first name. She was a great MBA student and, and a lot of other women. And, you know, uh, whether you're the breadwinner or not, the breadwinner uh, ought to bring home some money every month in the same amount. Yeah. Yeah. I love Sorry. That. Sorry if that's too simple. <laughs> but I think some of your listeners will be interested in that. Yeah. No, the th thing that stands out to me as you tell that story is that, you know, if we're not sure of these, these glass balls or what they are, or when, when we drop them, go to those who are most important to you. And often it's the spouse and say, Hey, what am I missing here? You know, could I tweak my work schedule? I, I want to make sure you're a priority in my life. So Absolutely. how could we do that? Right. Absolutely. Um, and I'm curious just throughout your career, you know, as I've, you know, looked at the different, uh, your career path online, what's available. Your, your wife is often in, in the picture with you and, and you are sort of uh, described as a couple who is doing this. So how has, how have you been able to involve your wife in, in these, in these efforts in your professional life and in, in giving back and whatnot? Any advice there as far as involving spouses? Well, I would say number one, is don't underestimate the strengths of your spouse. Do not underestimate the strengths of your spouse. If you ever feel like you're leaving, leaving her or him behind, it's your fault, not their fault. Don't blame them for you leaving them behind. You bring them along. Hmm. I think Betty and I uh, led parallel lives uh, somewhat. She, uh, although she taught at BYU uh, for a while, that's an interesting story. After I sold my, had my first big harvest, we moved from Littleton, Colorado to Provo. I became a housewife or house husband. 
sorry. And she was hired by BYU. Six weeks later, I was out trying to figure out what to do besides make the beds. And I'm not demeaning that. It just wasn't me. Right. But anyway, we we became, uh, when I say parallel lives, we were going down separate routes. But it really came together when I found my Aaron or our Aaron from the Lord. And I take that from Jacob. Uh, uh, you know, when Jacob talked about receiving the Aaron from the Lord, and that was pretty late. Uh, that that is uh, is in, in in Jacob chapter one verse seventeen. That that came after our our first real harvest, where I didn't have to work anymore for money, and that's when we moved to the Philippines. And bless my wife's heart. She wanted a mission in the mission call in the worst way. I'd served a mission. She wanted to serve a mission. We had a great idea. I had a great idea. Uh, I wanted to move to the Philippines and teach return missionaries how to start and grow businesses. And she said, honey, let's try and get a mission call to do that. So uh, we went to the welfare department of the church. We went to the Department of Education for the church. CES is what it was called. Uh, went to the humanitarian, went to LDS charities. Everybody thought it was a great idea, but it didn't fit in their department and go over here and there. So we just moved. And when we moved, we started a school for return missionaries called the Academy for Creating Enterprise. And, you know, uh, being an entrepreneur, I would just stand up and start teaching. We recruited all these return missionaries, 27 in the first class. They all moved into this 11-bedroom house that we rented. And I would just stand up and teach. And the next day I would stand up and teach. And the next day I'd stand up and teach. Well, because of her education experience, a master's degree in, edu- in early childhood education, and because she taught at BYU, she took those lessons that I was giving and made lesson plans out of them. And that was the first, the second volume of curriculum that we made. And so she and I worked closely on those lessons together. So instead of walking down separate paths, uh, late in my 50s, we got really joined together. And we've been pretty joined together at the hip ever since. She lived with lived there with me for 19 months. Uh, we came home, worked together when I was entrepreneur in the residence at BYU. And then we moved back for another five months. Now, this is a little off subject, but in those uh, 19 months, we taught 179 return missionaries. Wow, that's great. Well, wow, yeah, wow. You know, the academy in every six days teaches 179. <laughs> uh, now, uh, you know, over 6,769 new businesses were started last year because of the academy. And so we're now in eight countries. We have 56,000 graduates. And uh, it's it's the errand from the Lord. I feel so sincerely about that. Yeah. Now we've gone on to hire a CEO. He's done a wonderful job. When he came on, there was maybe 150 chapters. Now there are 735. And, you know, the MBA Society, on their website, under donor, is the Academy for Creating Enterprise. I don't know if you knew that. Oh, cool. That's yeah. Great. So anyway, I've kind of talked on too long about that. but. What? Betty and I have have worked together on that, and we're still both involved, but it's no longer the Stephen Betty Gibson show. It's it's run by a professional, uh, uh, a man who has done wonderful things. We have a board, and uh, 
a lot of uh, a lot of MBAs that you know are involved in the academy. So that's awesome. That and I want to talk about the concept of you know an errand from the Lord. Uh, as that came to you, like, is there a story behind like the moment when that came to you, or it was obviously you were at a, sp- a spot where you could focus on on giving back more? But I, I'm just curious how maybe some young professionals could consider that concept of Aaron from the Lord. Cause it often feels like, yeah, that's when I'm really old and I can, you know, retire and focus on that. But for now I got to go to the office nine to five and, and hit my, you know, hit my goals type of thing. So yeah. what more could you teach us about that? Well, you know, Aaron from the Lord doesn't mean you do it a hundred. It doesn't always mean you do it a hundred percent of the time by any means, by any means. A lot of your listeners are serving now in bishoprics in Ellers Corn Presidencies, teaching primary, teaching in Relief Society, they're already, comp- uh, you know, giving a lot of their time and effort. Uh, I have, I, I, I want to address that in a moment, uh, but I want to, I want to make sure that uh, I do say that my patriarchal blessing was of help to me, uh, and the idea of the errand from the Lord came to me not in the middle of the night. It came to me as I read the. My patriarchal blessing, and it talked about a mission on earth. Uh, it repeated that several times. I then I went to the Philippines with Betty, and we we served there together. And it became more and more clear that uh, our combination of teaching in a very simplistic way, 25 rules of thumb, really made a lot of difference in a third world country. You know the concept. A buy low, sell high is revolutionary to them. The concept of work 10 hours a day, five and a half days a week, or it's a hobby, is revolutionary to them. The idea of, of making a success list is revolutionary to them. So my brand of simplicity uh, really appealed to them. And, I, and we were in a position to give back. And uh, so... Uh, I, I'd like to say that in the middle of the night, it came to me, that was the Aaron of the, the Lord. Uh, it came to me three times, and it lit my room up. Unfortunately, that's not true. What it did light up was my mind to think more clearly and to see that I could, I yes, I could serve uh, before I sold my first business. But, the you know, a key thing I want to mention here, which is on subject but a little off subject, is I remember the first time I was in a bishopric, and I was shocked. Because I found that there was a difference in the intensity of people when they are serving mammon, is that the right word? Mammon? As opposed to serving in the church and building the kingdom. I'm not saying they have to work the same number of hours, but they should work the same intensity. They should be intense about their church service. I remember this when that dawned on me, this guy was a very successful builder. He was building homes all over Littleton, Colorado. Very successful guy. But with a church assignment, eh, sometimes maybe a little bit. So this, this same intensity, if you give two hours, a, two hours, four hours, two hours a week to the Lord, in addition to what you give in your family, you're going to do great things. So I'm sorry yeah. I'm on my 
so no, I love that. That's exactly the the type of uh, inspiration we need to hear. It's it's really helpful, and I'm I'm curious you know, is that process. And I love that you, you highlight that there wasn't this moment where you you know everything was written down as far as each step and move to the Philippines and do this and you know buy that and, and prepare for this. But it's uh, you know just little by little, your mind came alive. You started pondering over these things and, and started to make steps. So was there a specific process that you went through to determine that the Philippines was the place you needed to go and, and, and what specifically you needed to do there? Well, I was, I was honored and I, I hate to mention a lot of names, but I was thrilled that, uh, when I came to BYU, uh, I met a very good man, uh, somewhat controversial because he doesn't always think like the rest of us, but that was Warner Woodworth in, in behavioral sciences and, and he and a mission president by the name of Menlo Smith started an organization called Enterprise Mentors International. And so I heard Warner speak and I immediately got on the phone, called Menlo Smith, said, I want to, I want to know more about your organization because I had time and I had money, even though I was, uh, involved in, in, in investments and BYU. And he invited me to go to the Philippines. When I went to the Philippines, that was my exposure to the Philippines, and I found what a great people they were. But they, their culture, as many cultures, does not teach cultural habits that lead to what we would call financial success. Uh, they're very successful in many ways. They have, they, they're shoulder, head and shoulders above Americans in many ways, but they do not have the cultural habits that they need to be, for instance, like the Good Samaritan, who had a first aid kit and a mule and a credit reputation so that he could charge at the motel and had a, had, uh, had those kind of things. They all want to be for, uh, Good Samaritans, but they don't have the assets. And so we teach them how to start and grow small businesses, and then they aren't so small anymore. So I don't know where your question was going. I may have got yeah. off subject a little bit. Yeah, but that's how I got in the Philippines. Gotcha. gotcha. And, and, and Mentors International at that time was all about microcredit. And I said, Steve, you got to either give them money or give them education. Because if you give them money, you're going to be a loan collector. If you give them education, you're going to teach them how to get money. And so uh, we've concentrated. Never, I don't remember ever giving a microcredit loan to some 50 6,900, 60, graduates. I don't think we've ever given a loan. Yeah. Um, th- yeah, that's, a, and then it's inspiring, really helpful as, as individuals maybe contemplate where they, they can give, give back. Is there anything else as far as this errand, errand from the Lord uh, concept that we haven't touched on before we move on? Um, I, I don't think so. We've talked about okay. a happy life. We've talked about, uh, how important the glass ball is. We've talked about uh, they they need to be giving something immediately. Uh, I would say this. Uh, the Filipinos think when I talk about King Benjamin uh, and, and, Mo, and Mosiah chapter 2 about sharing their substance, they think substance is money. Substance isn't money. You, you're sh- I don't know what you're sharing with money, but I know what you're sharing currently. By sponsoring, by podcasting, you're, you're giving a lot of your substance. I tell Filipinos, give your smile, give encouragement, that's substance. And so no matter where your listeners are, 
they can give substance by a smile, a friendly face, a visit, a nice hello, simple, kind things. But I would not, I would encourage them to give their uh, financial responsibility to the Lord first rather than last. Some people think about, well, I'm going to figure my tithing out at the same time I'm going to tithing settlement. That's not the way it works. You pay your tithing, excuse me, you pay your financial contributions when you get the money, not with what you have left. Sorry about that. But that's the way I feel. I strongly, I feel strongly about that. So errant from the Lord, I think we've pretty well discussed it. They are on an errand from the Lord now, but they also should examine their strengths and go with their strengths. I have a son that I wanted to develop his weaknesses, and I finally convinced him, go with your strengths. You know, your weaknesses will come along. You'll always have weaknesses, but develop your strengths. And you also mentioned small things. Yeah, I mean, I'm an old man, but uh, we've made a lot of small progresses, and I've got one, at least one other thing I want to tell you about along that line. Yeah, please do. Are you ready? I'm ready. Are you ready? All right. <laughs> yep. It's one of it's one of the success habits. I have I have several success habits, but one that I love the most, and this is not revolutionary. They've all been taught it. Some of them do it, including yourself, I hope. And that is a success list every day, every morning. That written list of what I'm going to get done, and that list has things having to do with taking care of my family, taking care of my business. I'm still in business. Plenty. I'm doing business right now. Maybe we'll talk about that. But uh, on that list are all the things that I need to get done. And my wife sometimes is shocked that I get so much done. Of course, I do have a full half-time assistant that helps me. But, uh, you know, that to-do list is is critical. And uh, I call yeah. that a success habit. And we teach that in our curriculum to the academy. And I, I'm curious, just uh, I like to get in the nitty gritty of, of these types of, uh, of, you know, tactics. Is there, is it on a pad of paper that you write it down and you're just crossing out as you go? Or is there a, a method to the, the approach? You know, I hate to tell you what I do because, you know, your, your listeners are going to groan and put their hand on their head. Oh boy. But now what I, I got to know. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, it's, again, it's simple. I, I think the S and Steve stands for simple. Uh, but I, I write it on my computer and I print it out and I cross it off as I get things done. And I also write done, uh, right there. And I sort, uh, you know, with the computer and it puts all the done ones on the bottom and I work, and I work the list. I'm reading a great book now, uh, and I'm almost done with it. And, uh, he thinks you ought to do the hard things first. I like to do the fun things first. When you're uh, working for a living, you have to do the hard things work, hard things first. But uh, and I prioritize them along that line. We one of our twenty five rules of thumb is a Japanese word. I always tell these Filipinos I'm going to teach them a Japanese word. They get all excited. You probably know this Japanese word. Oh, do I? Starts with K. Do you know any Japanese words? Ah, man, I don't think so. <laughs> All right, I'm going to teach you one. All right. Kaizen. 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 Okay. Con- What's it mean? Continuous improvement. Love Continuous it. improvement. Every day improving. You know, uh, I, I don't want to be too religious, but, you know, our prophet has taught us a new understanding about repentance and that he talks about change every day. And that to-do list helps you change every day. Yeah. It's a form of repentance, right? 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, somehow, Benny and I had a lot of trouble thinking about repenting every day. But when he talked about changing every day, for some reason, that goes down easier. We yeah. need to change every day. And we yeah. try to. Yeah, I love that. So, obviously, as you're, um, you know, working through uh, the the academy, the, is it, it's ACE for short, right? The acronym, A-C-E? Well, they call it that in the Philippines. Okay, had, maybe. You know why I don't like to call it ACE? Why is that? Because on my way to work every day, I pass this big dumpster that's got A-C-E, ACE on it. So I don't like to think of ACE in the dumpster. Okay. But uh, a lot of people call it ACE, absolutely. And I, okay. I've quit correcting them. After the first 10 years, I quit co- co- correcting them. And they nice. can call it ACE. And you can call it ACE. All right, all right. Well, I'm, I'm just curious, obviously, you know, with the uh, early on your work there and then just what the, the current work that it's doing, that it involves a lot of, of mentorship there. And as I've talked with various people about uh, their interaction with you, you've often been described as a mentor to them. And so talk to me about the concept of mentorship and how you've employed that concept throughout your professional life. Wow. You know, I get way too much credit for my friends. I really do. Uh, you know, David Smith, I don't think he ever, I don't know if he does it in church, but every other time he's at a podium, he's throwing my name around and I appreciate that. Uh, I, I don't, I don't think, I don't think it's the hugeness. I think it's the timing in many cases. It's being there for someone and talking with them and listening to them and hearing their story and just occasionally making suggestions and never beat up their idea. Uh, sometimes we just say, well, have you approached it this way? Or, or who else have you bounced that idea off of? And so forth. But we never knock their idea or their, or their self-worth. But sometimes we do help them question the idea. You know, I'll tell you a story about David Smith. Uh, David Smith was doing really well. And I do want to talk a little bit about creating wealth. Yeah, we have well, some time. Absolutely. But, uh, David Smith and his cousin, Kimball, were really doing well selling uh, pool tables online. I, I don't, I'm sure you've heard that story. Yep. yep and he it. said, you know, we're thinking, we're thinking of opening retail stores. I said, you know, Davis, I wouldn't do that. That really sound well, I, I wasn't quite that strong. But <laughs> I, I'm saying, look, you've got a good going business online. Everybody's going online. Why would you go to a lesser model, you know, re, a, a retail operation, brick and mortar? you got to pay employees. And he said, well, I'll give that some consideration. He opened up retail stores. He said it was the smartest movie ever made up to that time. <laughs> so, you know, uh, a mentor isn't always right. But one thing, uh, one thing mentors like, uh, and it's, it's a simple little thing, and that's a thank you note. I took someone to lunch the, uh, about three uh, months ago. I, I spent quite a bit of time with him. I gave him a couple of books. I gave him some suggestions. No word. Just hmm. a simple thank you. And today it doesn't even have to be a thank you note. Just a message saying, Steve, thanks for that time. That goes so far. A little bit of gratitude. So it sounds like with your approach with mentorship or the concept of mentorship, it's not, and maybe I'm wrong. Did you have a formalized approach to it that you would always make sure you're involved in mentorship in some extent? Or naturally did these conversations just come as you went about serving and, and working? I think they come just by talking with people. Yeah. Uh, 
you know, I, another story about another one of your graduates that kind of fits here. Uh, I don't know if Eduardo Zanata has ever shared this, but when he graduated from Harvard Business School, MBA, uh, they had a little roast. And what they said about uh, Eduardo, he said, Eduardo, uh, one thing about Eduardo, his the average age of his friend is over 60 years old. I mean, here, Eduardo <laughs> was probably 25. His average, average age of his friend is over 65. And I fit in that category. He and I on conference, I guess our wives are kind of tired of it, but we're we're messaging back and forth about the general authority talks and when they're going on. But I want to do the reverse. I think my average age of my friend is is probably 35. Huh. Uh, I just, they, they inspire me. They motivate me. They keep me young. I used to, I used to say, and, and Boyd K. Packer, Elder Packer gave the same quote, and I used to love this quote. Now I hate this quote. Uh, he said, old men talk about the past because they have no future. Young men talk about the future because they have no past. Mm. I hate that now because I'm an old man and I've got a future. I'm excited about life. I'm excited about, I'm doing things in the philanthropic area I'm not going to brag about. I'm not even going to tell you about but I'm really excited about them huh. and I'm excited to get up. And so old men do have a future yeah. and, and I have a future and yeah. we all have a future. Sorry. I love, that. I, I love it. That the optimism is, is inspiring for sure. Um, so I, I know I've sort of bounced around on, on your outline here. So the first one you mentioned was a happy life and we've some principles there. And then the second one was church and giving back when we've uh, hit various principles there. Third one is, is creating wealth. And I think a lot of individuals with the best intentions go into a professional business or not entrepreneurial life because they want to create some wealth because that wealth allows you to have a lot of influence in, in life or, you know, and, and, and create uh, opportunities for others as well. And so where, where would you begin as far as talking about this concept of creating wealth? Well, I think I would uh, begin by say, stay current. I have a, I have a story. Uh, I've never discussed it with this individual. He may deny it. I don't, I hope not. But uh, when I was uh, back from the Philippines, I was wandering around the Marriott school. I was still entrepreneur in residence there. And uh, we had some car tables out, and different students were presenting ideas. Now, by that time, I had already invested. Uh, the first investor, I, it's okay to say this, in, in Omniture, uh, 1-800-CONTACTS, and Ancestry. I was the first investor in all three. But I found that I, I was at this car table, and I was really excited about the idea. But you know what? I wasn't current. And so I did not invest in this idea. And I, I don't have many regrets. Not that this is a big regret, because I think if I went to the guy now and talked to him about the academy, I think he'd make a nice donation to the academy to help, help us grow, especially in the Philippines. But that guy's name was Garrett Gee. Hmm. Do you know that name? I do. Yeah. He's, yeah. Uh, he did that, uh, the QR code. He yes. was on Shark yeah. Tank, and now he travels the world with his, his family, the Buckleist right. family. That's right. So he was at this car table uh, uh, looking for funds. 
And I said, you know, this is to me, I said, this is a great idea, but I'm not current. If I'm not going to be current, I can't do my job as entrepreneur in residence. So shortly after that, I, I resigned from that position and, and quit as a full-time faculty uh, member. I wasn't really full-time, but uh, yeah. that was my title, full-time faculty member. Why? Because I wasn't current. And so number one of creating wealth is stay current in, in what's going on around you. Yeah. I, I could have donated some money, not, excuse me, I could have invest, invested some money with him and reaped a great harvest. But I don't yeah. have a big regret because I've done some well in some angel investment. So number one, uh, stay current. And any no, advice on, on how, to, how to stay current? Well, well uh, uh, another war story is Jonathan Kuhn, who started 1-800-CONTACTS. He was a workaholic. He changed uh, at the end. But he said, Steve, I read 100 magazines a month. Wow. Wow. And he, I mean, he stayed current. And he built 1-800-CONTACTS from nothing to the 20% that I owned at one time and sold for $250,000 is now worth over $100 million for that oh, wow. same 20%. Yeah. yeah. That's when we don't talk about at the house, you know, <laughs> 20%. So, so stay current. Number two is uh, probably the biggest uh, investment mistake I've made. Not only that, I brought a couple of my friends along. And that's because I forgot a critical element of investing. I think it's critical. Yeah. And, and what is it? <laughs> and that is get on up elevators, not down elevators. Mm. There are industries that are going up and there are industries that are going down and have gone all the way down. Can you name one that's gone all the way down that used to be a red hot industry in the home of everybody. Oh, in the home of everybody, like uh, VHS tapes? Yes, uh. absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Well, I invested uh, a lot of money, not by today's, well, I still by today's standards, in a down elevator. And I brought two of my good friends in, and they invested the same amount. You know what that business was? What? Yellow Pages. Oh, no. Printed yellow pages. <laughs> we were sure that we could have three to five years three to five years of life, but it didn't have three to five years of life, and it's silly to invest the kind of money we did in a down elevator. So lesson number two would be invest in up elevators and spend your time in up elevators, just yeah. like all the companies that I mentioned, mentioned to you were up elevators whether it was mail order contact lens or whether it was computerized ancestry or whether it was computer analytics by Josh James and John Pastana, yeah. two wonderful gentlemen. Yeah. And obviously with hindsight, it's uh, easier to point out those, those down elevators. I mean, in the moment, is there any process you would do or questions you'd ask yourself to spot up elevators? Well, I think if you stay current, you'll mm -hmm. recognize up elevators. Yeah. You really will. Yeah. You know, uh, QR codes was definitely an up elevator. Uh, Garrett Gay didn't invent it that I know of. I've read of who has invented it, but he merchandised it. He sold it. And for that, he was paid $54 million for his company. And I don't know if he was out of school yet. So yeah. that was an up elevator. Those who are current will recognize up elevators, let me assure you.
Uh, that's great advice. Uh, and then you, you put down here on the, the, your outline, don't think outside the box. What do you mean by that? Isn't that what we're supposed to do, Steve? Well, uh, yes. Uh, we're taught not to think outside the box, but better it's to get outside the box. Oh, I get you. yourself outside the box. Don't just think about getting outside the box. <laughs> get outside the box. And that's what we teach our uh, tens of thousands of, uh, of uh, people at the academy differentiate yourself, differentiate your business. And uh, I, I would like to send, uh, I'd like to make sure that all your readers get a copy of the uh, 25 rules of thumb. But yeah, think outside the box. Another thing I wrote down is uh, any money I've made, I've made by selling too early. Hmm. Uh, that seems strange, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. Yeah. You should sell right at the peak, you know. That's yeah, <laughs> yes, that's true. Right at peak. That's what you want to do. It's sell it right at peak. So, is the real estate market at peak yet? Uh, maybe, I, maybe next week. Maybe. Yeah. Hold off. See, that's the problem. You don't know when to, when peak is, and that's so right. you sell a little too early. I have a friend whose name will go undiscussed who who had a piece of property in in and around St. George, not St. George itself, but Hurricane or some uh, small undiscovered city and he, he gathered it together and it was worth 30 million dollars he had an offer for 30 million dollars you know what he held out for more uh, yeah and he regretted in 2008 it. he lost all that property he never mm. reaped the harvest down there as a matter of probably cost him so i believe in selling too early i'm selling a piece of, of property now up in boise um I hope the seller. Well, maybe the seller will offer me more. But no, we've uh, we've we've signed a purchase sales agreement. It's too late. I think it's worth probably a million more than we're getting, but uh, we won't get that for a year and a half or two years. So I'm selling too early. They're getting a great buy, and I'm I'm getting a great purchase, and I'm selling too early. The oxygen company that I sold, I sold a little early, but. Now, it, 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 it just isn't worth anything, almost anything now. Yeah. So selling too early is a good rule of thumb. Yeah, that's helpful. In that moment when it feels like, wow, I, I think we're selling too early, then you know, Steve said to do it now. Do it now, right? Well, <laughs> wait a minute. Senior legal advisor <laughs> okay. and your accountant. <laughs> but, that's uh, not what I mean. I, mean yeah, yeah. I know. I know. I know. But uh, truly, sell too early. Yeah, that's really helpful. Um, and then I, I, I'm intrigued by this concept of obviously asking others and, and listen, but follow your gut. That's sometimes a tough balance. It is. I have a story about that, but I want to also end. Uh, well, I don't want to end, but I also want to talk to you a little bit about negotiation. Okay. And another, another rule okay. of thumb. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I'm doing all my investment in Boise uh, in real estate. And I've, I've told you the end from the beginning, which isn't a good way, even though Stephen Covey liked that way. But uh, so I, I did an investment in real estate in Saratoga Springs before there was a Saratoga Springs with a wonderful man by the name of Paul Johnson. And then Paul Johnson called me. I probably shouldn't have used his name. He called me in uh, 2010 and said, my, my brother and my father, uh, like everyone else, are caught up in this uh, devaluation of property and 
You, you remember what happened in 2008, 2009? Yeah, vaguely. Yeah, it didn't end well, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, for some people. Right. Uh, so I went up and saw this beautiful place called Hazelwood Village. Hazelwood Village in Boise. It was 110 acres. Uh, it was under development. They had 22 homes built, but they planned to build over 600 homes. But the bank was going to take it back. And so I worked it out with this wonderful family, the Johnson family, and uh, I bought that from them, from the bank and from them. And uh, But before I bought it, now we're talking about going with your gut, I, I brought the developer down here, and he met with six of my friends, six of my associates, real estate people, accountants, lawyers, business people. We all got in a room together, and uh, this brother made a great presentation. And then he walked out, and I said, what do you guys think? They said, it's too early to get back in real estate. Don't do it. And I did it because I'd seen the property. And I saw what a great opportunity it was. So get your support group together and listen to them, but go with your gut. And that's yeah. been the best investment I've ever made. And I made some good investments. And so listen, listen to your advisors, but go with your gut. And so tell me about negotiation. Well, I, you know, I feel like I'm telling too many stories, but hey, that's what we come here to, to listen to. So <laughs> please go on. Well, um, I say you'll never make more money per hour than when you're negotiating. Hmm. You'll never make more money per hour than when you're negotiating. Uh, let's say in the old days when you were buying a house and, uh, you know, they wanted X number of dollars and you offered 10000 less and they took your offer. You made $10,000 just by asking, just by negotiating. Mm -hmm. I'll tell you a story when I sold my oxygen company. I won't tell you for how much, but I will tell you this, that the uh, vice president called me and offered a certain amount of money. And I said, you know, Henry, that's, that's a nice offer. But I was really kind of planning on $637,000 more. And he said, you know, I don't know how you arrived at that, Steve, but I don't have authority to pay that much more money. But I will go talk to the president of the company and I'll call you back and I'll say, and I said, Henry, when will you call me back? And he said, well, within a half an hour, he called back in 20 minutes and he said, I got $637,000 more for you. So I figured that was pretty well time spent. Yeah. And, and when people, when people are negotiating their salary to start a job, when the company really wants to hire them, negotiate, and hold out for a little bit more. You're worth it. We're all worth it. Hold out yeah. for a little bit more. If it takes you 20 minutes to get 10,000 more a year or 50,000 more a year, whatever, you'll never make more money per hour than when you're negotiating. And mm, that's, that's one of my golden rules. Whether you're buying a car, whether you're buying a house, whether you're negotiating for uh, a company that you're going to buy, whatever. Yeah. Do you like yeah, that, that one, Kurt? I love it. Yeah, that one I'll, I'll use for sure. For I sure. hope you do. Just don't <laughs> use it with me, okay? okay. <laughs> yeah, well, 
Yeah, no, no worry there. No worry there. So, yeah. uh, well, Steve, this has been uh, so inspiring and, and interesting. And there's probably hours and hours more we could do, uh, but maybe for an- another time. Um, well, is, is there any? I, Go ahead. I, I will stop with two things. First of all, where I started, and that is have a happy life. And secondly, this is a little bit financial in in character, but John Pistana often gives me credit for teaching in this. If you work for three to five years like no one else will, you can work the rest of your, you can live the rest of your life like no one else can. He remembered that from our early days of mentoring. And so I would pass that on. So find your errand from the Lord. Uh, work uh, as hard for the Lord as you do for business. And, and uh, it's been great visiting with you. It's been a happy life. And it's, you've made it happier by knowing you, Kurt. Oh, well, thank, thank you. you for all you're doing. I well, appreciate I got, it. I got one more question for you, but I want to make sure if, if people do want to get connected with some of the, the, the your, your projects or the, the, uh, the Academy for Creating Enterprise and whatnot, where, where would you send them to find more information? You know, the easiest way, and thank you for that. I appreciate that. That's even better than negotiating when you bring the subject up. <laughs> if they'll go to LDS MBA Society.com. Uh, then if they'll go to the page where it says donor, don't be scared, or not the page, but what do you call it in the menu? Yeah, the go menu the item. Donor. Then if they click on that, they'll go to the academy and that will take them to the academy website. And another way that I love, the academy has gone beyond just serving RMs, but is stop rmpoverty.com stop rmpoverty.com mm. and that will also get them to the website and uh they need to they need to when they make a, a donation it can be small or it can be nothing but they need to tell us where they serve the mission where did you serve your mission i served in sacramento california spanish speaking oh, so all right great yeah, that's right that's <laughs> wonderful right. mission it was. It was one of the best, for sure. Thank you so much. Well, Steve, last question I have for you is, is if you were in a room full of uh, MBA students, uh, young professionals, or just anybody who's maybe just looking for some encouragement in, in their professional life, what final encouragement would you give to that audience? Wow. I think I'm going to quote Churchill, if you don't mind. Love it. Uh, and there's a quick story with that. Churchill was invited to speak at a university at the graduation ceremony. And the president of that university invited a lot of his friends to speak. So the time Churchill got around to it, an hour had gone by. So he got up to the podium. He put his hands on the podium and said, never give up and sat down. And the president said, prime minister, please, you've got it. These people came all this way to hear more. And he said, okay. He went back to the podium, put his hands on the podium, and said, these are my final words. Never, never, never give up. Thank you for listening to the Latter-day Saint MBA podcast. Check out the show notes for more information about our guest and visit latterdaysaintmba.com to find details about the Latter-day Saint MBA Society.